Welcome to the A Fire Podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Okay. Now we might be able to do with less retail uh, or manage without as much office space in our lives. And that's certainly something that's being discussed. And we'll see how that plays out in the years to come. But what about where we live? Where do we raise our family? Where do we sleep? Where do we live our lives? That can't be done on a Zoom call. So residential investing, understandably, continues to be the favorite asset class for AFIRE investors. That's why we're sitting down today with Sabrina Unger, who's the Managing Director and Head of Research and Strategy for American Realty Advisors, to help us see more clearly and more deeply into the residential market. So welcome, Sabrina, to the AFIRE podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Everyone wonders what, uh, what future generations might do when it comes to living arrangements, right? And, and it's very difficult to do that as we think about how people arrange themselves in terms of co-living or sharing and all these kinds of things. And, and there's a lot of talk about it. But you recommend, as you look at the data and you analyze what's going on, that we look at life changes at different ages and, and, and understand how the demographic groups are interacting with each other. So how does that work? Um, and what can we surmise from that analysis or even know from that analysis? It can be rather difficult to know within any degree of specificity what a generational cohort will want at time X in the future when that future we're talking about is more than a handful of years out. So it's very difficult to know with certainty a child born today, uh, you know, what types of, of amenities they will want in their apartment 20 years from now. And that's because we need to be able to see and understand how the factors that influence generational cohorts, attitudes, and perceptions. So mega trends like technology, social developments, economic policy, all of those things, we really need to see how that plays out during their formative years. And so what that means is that quite often we get focused on trying to predict the near-term shifts, which we have a little bit more confidence in and can inevitably miss the slower moving though just as powerful demographic tectonic plates that are really shifting sort of all around us. And so we wanted to make sure that our top-down approach was cognizant of these shifts so that we're poised and at the ready to incorporate them into our strategies when the opportunity timing dictates. And so the good news about this approach is that in large part, it's simply a matter of arithmetic. We know how many people are born in a given year, and we know that approximately 18 years later, that person may be contemplating attending college or moving into their first apartment. And we can follow their progression through different life stages and anticipate around what age they're likely to get married, have children, need more space. Um, actuarial tables can even help us with the math to work out how long people could live. We know when the crest of demand waves will occur based on what year the generational bulge is entering a life stage. And we also can identify when that tide will inevitably begin to recede. And the benefit of this approach is it can help mitigate being either too early or too late to the party when it comes to embracing different types of for rent residential in one's portfolio. So, so it seems that, that um, you're not having to, to predict the next, I don't know, pandemic or something along those lines, as long as you're looking at the tectonic plates of, the, of, of these masses of people as they go through their lives. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think what, again, what we're sort of focused on is, you know, sort of combining the two elements, which is this idea of long-termism as a crit critical strategic complement to that more tactical, shorter-term portfolio decisions, because the two really do go hand in hand. So strategically, you need to know what you want your allocations to be to these different types of residential investments and when you want to achieve those allocations by. So inevitably, that does require a long-term view, and that's where these sort of demographic uh, tectonic plates come in. But you also need to incorporate the more granular, bottom-up tactical approach that dictates where you want to own these, so in what markets, at what time. And then it, sorts of, it gets into the notion of what they should look and feel like based on that individual cohort's preferences. And so I think for us, what was really important about this topic is that um, often we find that investors can risk missing the forest for the trees by not incorporating both views, the long-termism and sort of the near-term into their residential strategies. Well, it, it almost seems like the long-term issues or the tectonic plates, we, we think they're not moving. You know, like it's, it, it, so shall it ever be. This is what it looks like right now. So you make your, your short-term calculations based on that not changing. And quite often you're fortunate enough that it hasn't changed enough to make a difference, but especially in times like these with, with, with so many different uh, shifts, if you will, from a demographic standpoint. If you, um, one of the things that I, I found fascinating about your charts in, in a recent article that you wrote for, for uh, AFIRE Summit, and, and it's absolutely worth reading. I recommend that everyone take a look at it. It's called Safe as Houses. Uh, Sabrina, when you did that, there was a chart that you included that had all the different demographic groups, you know, the boomers and the, and the Xers and the, and the, and the millennials, et cetera. Um, and to me, it looked like it, it's almost becoming a, they're intersecting in terms of the demand or when they do demand or they're, it, 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 how do you map that out? How do you understand, you know, what is happening, not just with the individual groups, but the individual groups in, in response or in, in parallel to each other? Yeah, I mean, so I think what we're talking about is, is again, tracking slowly shifting sands over time. And so if you look at that chart, um, from year to year, it's almost imperceptible, the changes. But again, taking a step back and taking a long-term view, you can see how these how these groups become larger influences on, on all types of real estate, but especially residential. And so for a lot of things, what we're able to do is draw parallels from prior generations. So we can look at historically, what's the median age someone has historically rented their first apartment? What were the life events that marked prior generations shift from cities to suburbs? At what point in people's lives do they buy homes? And then from there, we can make adjustments based on the unique characteristics of the cohort. And that tees us up to be able to anticipate cohorts movement throughout the rental spectrum and what the depth of demand is likely to be. So for example, we know that 45% of baby boomers bought their first home between the age of 25 and 34. But this coincided with a long, booming economic cycle. Um, but if we're looking to track when millennials or Gen Z might transition into homeownership, we have to make adjustments based on the characteristics of their lifetime. And these two generations have faced starkly different economies than their parents and grandparents. They've entered the workforce uh, during the GFC and now during the pandemic. And as a result, they're economically disadvantaged relative to prior generations. They're burdened with rampant student loan debt. They're forming new households. They're getting married, having children later in life as a result. But we know anthropologically, many of them will continue to hit all those life milestones 
the timelines are just spread further out. So, you know, I think it's also helpful to break down these larger cohorts into smaller subsets. Um, so in our analysis, we categorize those aged 60 plus as retirees, but there is a meaningful variation in the way the component segments of that group occupy and use residential real estate. So someone in their early 60s will have a different senior living demand profile than someone in their 80s. So what we recommend doing is identifying the cohorts that are most critical to the types of residential real estate you're investing in and then go one more step granular. And it seems that the housing solutions that these different generations are reaching for might be different, not, not just when they do something or how much money they have, but how they solve for the problem of needing to live somewhere. Um, I'm thinking about kind of the expansion of, of multifamily uh, into other categories, and you referred to it in your article as well, which I thought was, was insightful uh, in terms of you know, co-living, in terms of use of long-stay hotels, in terms of uh, you know, how senior living is evolving, how student housing is evolving. Um, how do you see that happening? How do you see, what, what are you seeing in terms of the response to the changes in generational lives? You know, I think at the end of the day, residential real estate has evolved based on need. So uh, whereas before, you know, co-living was not an asset class in, in sort of the institutional sense by virtue of the fact that people thought the traditional multifamily space was, was solving for that, what we've seen is an affordability crisis, you know, exacerbate the fact that people need accessible entry price points. And the way that developers have to date been able to deliver that is, is through co-living. So you know, it's it's blending some things that they already knew how to do from traditional multifamily, specifically the studio space, combining elements of student housing, which given the sort of tenancy profile of a co-living renter, it's, it's sort of a natural progression for those students who are recently graduated, want to live in cities, um, and just simply cannot afford sort of the institutional quality multifamily that has existed to date. And so, so much of the evolution has been driven by need. Um, you know, if we think about the sort of emergence of single family rental over the last, you know, 18 to 24 months, you know, millennials are, have been getting married and having children, and that was all in place pre-pandemic, but it's really been accelerated by the fact that now people need more space. They're concerned about school districts and the for sale market. There just simply is not enough supply. So again, it's, it's the evolution of need and the the idea that institutional capital can step into that need um, has created just a, a diverse opportunity set in the residential space. Yeah, and certainly those demand characteristics are, are spreading the word far and wide that single family is something that, that institutions are interested in in a way that they weren't even five years ago. Uh, so that's that's been a dramatic shift, a dramatic change. Uh, you know, there's a product area that has long uh, been a favorite of mine, but long been a troubling one, difficult to do. You have to really know what you're about as an investor in senior housing. Given the demographics that you're seeing right now, does that mean it's time for us to go in and, and, and buy a bunch of senior housing at this point? You know, based, based on our research, we're still several years out from senior living really warranting a larger allocation in investor portfolios, particularly the higher intensity senior living models. You know, the fact of the matter is the average independent living age is around 83 years old and assisted living and skilled nursing, which are higher intensity, those entry ages are even later in people's lives. And yet, if we're looking at the demographics, the first baby boomer won't reach 83 until 2029. So we're still several years out. And while, yes, 
every day there is someone that's surpassing that age threshold, that big cohort whose arrival is expected to mark an acceleration in demand and make the segment more appealing as an investment vehicle, that, that day is nearly a decade out from this point. And of course, we still don't know whether recency bias from the health crisis that occurred in these facilities during the pandemic will push baby boomers entry even further out. So what feels like a more imminent opportunity to me is the active adult or age-restricted segment of senior living. It sort of eliminates the high-touch, operationally intensive elements that accompany the schemes that require medical assistance. And so in a lot of ways, it can behave in an investor's portfolio similarly to traditional multifamily, and it appeals nearer to where baby boomers are today. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. When you look across uh, things, what do you think real estate uh, investors are in danger of missing? What's what's the element that, gosh, a lot of people just kind of aren't seeing, whether it's an opportunity or, or it's a risk that people aren't paying enough attention to? You know, I think while the various types of for rent housing have similarities, they also have unique operational components that need to be considered from a risk mitigation perspective. And so in that sense, I think it's really crucial to know your and your manager's capabilities before venturing into new schemes. So this is particularly true of those that have higher operational intensity models. So um, things like the you know higher intensity end of the senior living spectrum or, or co-living where programming and medical care are part of the critical offerings in that segment. And so you know what I'm most focused on is making sure that we recommend starting uh, with a synergistic sort of extension of what our existing capabilities are. So if you as an investor are adept at owning and managing traditional urban and suburban multifamily apartments, horizontal apartments or aggregated single family rental communities behave quite similarly, but that allows you to diversify into other segments of the renter population. So I think um, one of the key risks is just not um, getting ahead of your skis, so to speak, and, and ensuring that your capabilities in-house or vis-a-vis -vis your managers um, sort of play into the operational intensity of the different models. And, you know, more and more, it seems uh, real estate has much more of intense operating models baked in. We were always a passive investment, at least that's what a lot of people thought. Um, but even office is starting to look a little bit more like a hotel. Uh, there's, there's a lot of discussion around that intensity issue. And I wonder too, if looking at the operational demands of, of emerging kind of uh, new versions of existing asset classes, that, that there may be some opportunities there for companies that understand what they actually are, what the operations are and how they either do it or outsource uh, the work that needs to be involved in an appropriate way. Yeah, I think, you know, you're certainly seeing um, some of the larger players in the space consider investment in operating companies, right, where they're getting a, a piece of that pie and they they sort of bring that capability in-house. So that, that creates sort of automatic um, knowledge base in their businesses. What are you most hopeful about looking at these demographics? It can often be a bleak business, um, but, you know, what are you seeing that's positive that give me a reason to live? What do you got? You know, I think um, investors and, and, you know, myself included, we could sort of fall prey into viewing opportunities in the residential segment as being binary. So it's it's urban versus suburban for rent or for sale. Um, and ultimately, that home ownership traditionally has been sort of the end of the road, right? When we lose a renter to home ownership, um, it's time to focus on someone else because we have sort of lost them. And uh, 
Our living schemes age spectrum really demonstrates just how much of the residential space is available, how it's expanded, how diversified an opportunity set it is for investors to really cater to renters throughout their, their sort of useful renter life. Um, and so I think for me, what is the most exciting is just to see how quickly the institutional space has embraced single family rental. And I'm, I'm very optimistic to see that we're able to solve for a real need, which is quality, safe housing in suburban locations that people want to live, want to raise their families. Um, you know, and we haven't even spoken about sort of the emotional consideration of, of renting versus owning, which is there's the flexibility element. So there, there is, a, you know, an added benefit for folks who want to be in a certain school district, but may not either have the ability to buy a home by virtue of not having, you know, the down payment or just need that, that added flexibility. And so I'm, I'm really optimistic to see the space evolve to meet those All needs. Right. You, you're optimistic indeed. I, and I think rightly said, and, and I think we have a shot. We have a chance at making these things work better. So I, I appreciate it. Well, we're, uh, we've run out of time, believe it or not. And uh, it has uh, you know, been an absolute pleasure to speak with you, Sabrina. I want to encourage anyone who's listening to make sure you subscribe to Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, any of those services will allow you to subscribe to the AFIRE podcast. So make sure you do that uh, as soon as possible so you don't miss a single word of geniuses like Sabrina talking about demographics. You have to tune in. So thank you all for that. And thank you, Sabrina, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.